Welcome to Planet Pod, the podcast for everyone who cares about the planet. Welcome to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter, and today we're talking about that really tricky issue of energy. How do we reduce our consumption? How do we provide the right energy mix moving forward? What's the role of renewables? And what, if any, is the role of fossil fuels? We've got huge challenges ahead of us as um, a nation and as a planet to meet our climate change targets set by the Paris Agreement. And the current trajectory is that we're probably not going to make them. So we have a a significant challenge on our hands. And to help me discuss this and unpick it and talk about what we can do as consumers or providers or as policymakers, I'm joined by Alcarim Govinji, who is the Director of Sustainable Energy at DNVGL. We might get you to explain what that means. Welcome. And Joe Wadsworth, who's the Head of Business Sales and Partnerships for Good Energy. Thank you both for coming. Good morning. Hello. Hello. Great. So um, let's start a little bit with um, where we are at the moment. So, Akrim, if I can start with you, just paint a picture of what is the situation around energy supply currently. Mm. So energy supply today is dominated by fossil fuels, um, and 85% or so of uh, energy supply today is from oil, gas and coal. Um, so, and the balance being from other sources, renewables, solar, wind, etc., so it's disproportionate in terms of where we need to be in the future today. But of course, that's the whole point of, of what we're trying to achieve here is a transition to something where renewables and other sources of energy, uh, more sustainable sources become dominant and fossil becomes far less dominant. Okay. And obviously that's about, um, you know, trying to, sh- as you say, it's a transition and trying to shift that balance. But there, this, that's not an easy um, challenge is it? I mean, that's a those are macro problems that involve you know different policy making and different levels of investment. And I mean, I, at the current rate, do you feel that we're moving fast enough? We're not. Um, and <laughs> uh, DNVGL is a Norwegian-based consultancy, and annually we produce something called the Energy Transition Outlook, and we've done that for the last three years. The last being in in September 2018. And what that predicts is that we will achieve two degrees uh, already by 2041. So the target of being under two degrees by 2050 is not going to be met. And that's on our current level of, of consumption and production in terms of the, both the mix and, and how people are using energy? Or Yes, yeah, so that makes certain uh, assumptions going forward. So it says, look, you know, uh, given current technologies, it also assumes certain breakthrough technologies, such as hydrogen, uh, increased use of storage where it's required to support uh, renewables uh, sources and, and capture and store store energy and electricity. Uh, it will make certain assumptions around that. It'll look at global population growth and what that's going to be um, and how energy will change in terms of the energy intensity. So, um, of course, we're going to have uh, more efficient uh, processes, for example, in manufacturing, which will help that transition. Um, so it will look at some of those assumptions, and that's based on those assumptions. It predicts uh, or assumes and estimates where we're going to be by 2050, which is more like 2.2 degrees. 
And where do those assumptions come from? Because do those assumptions, are they based on, you know, the status quo in terms of, of, of the main sources of production or are they based on significantly increasing renewable energy production? Um, so it has certain expectations of where we'll end up. Um, so it's based on a model that we've developed uh, using the Stellar model, um, and it makes these assumptions around where we're going to end up. But what it expects us to be, given the current trajectories and given some of these breakthrough tr- uh, technologies and given the cost reductions, for example, in wind and solar, it assumes that by 2050 that the rough mix of fossil and non-fossil will be 50-50. Okay. But that, that's a global figure, right? And that's a global figure. So it does take global variations. It looks at 10 different markets. I look at North America, Latin America, Asia, Eurasia, Middle East, North Africa, etc. And what about in the UK, Joe? Where are we in terms of that mix? Uh, so currently? at the moment, about uh, 3 in 10 of the units that come out of the plug socket are renewable. Uh, we, you know, we've seen uh, really quite a large increase uh, certainly over the last uh, 10 years, let's say, from about, I don't know, 5% back then to 30% now. And coal has, you know, diminished. Uh, and really, you, you know, it's just an opportunity. You know, the past was all about big fossil fuels. Uh, I think digging the ground up and burning it is a pretty last century mm. uh, attitude. Uh, and, you know, they sent the power direct to their consumers. And that doesn't really leave people engaged with it, where, where, you know, where their power is coming from. Uh, so we think that uh, good energy, that you know, everybody should play a part. So generating at home, having energy visible, renewable energy visible in the community, uh, it's really, really important uh, to help people realise that you know, perhaps the UK as a whole doesn't need as much uh, fossils as it has. Yeah. I mean, I think there are lots of issues in there, aren't there? I mean, I wax lyrical as my family will testify about um, wind turbines and get terribly excited. And, and, but everybody says to me, oh, but the problem with that is the wind doesn't blow all the time and you can't storage. So there are, so there are lots of issues out there to unpick there, one of it, which obviously is about storage and accessibility and that mix. And I'm really interested in what your thoughts are about the well, mix because it, it can't just be wind. Can it, it? It's exactly that. It's a mix of technologies at various scales. Uh, you, you know, one of the things to consider is not using as much electricity as well. You know, this is one of the, the biggest things. Uh, it really, should be uh, energy efficiency in the home. Uh, you know, but uh, to come back to your point, yeah. You, you know, so from Good Energy's perspective, uh, we think that the right way to do it is get your fingers dirty and do it yourself. So we, we've built stuff, you know, wind turbines and solar farms and so on. Uh, but really, to have direct connections to this mix of technologies of all sizes and shapes all around the country. So sort of a sharing economy of energy really mm. so democratized decentralized energy so we work with uh, 1500 generators all sizes and shapes all over the uk some are anaerobic digestion some are wind some are solar and again you, you know we've some got of those are quite small aren't they i mean you have like a single turbine in a farmer's field for example oh okay yeah so so those 1500 are larger actually you, you know we've got about 150,000 domestic level generators for whom we administer the feed-in tariff so they're really they're their own little power stations right, okay. uh, and as we see uh, electrification of the transport industry uh, so you know the uh, growth in electric vehicles and uh, you know as uh, al said the price of solar falling massively you know if everybody just gets a bit more engaged with it so they can use less so they can put less strain on the grid and uh, you know have a happier energy experience yeah but my sense is that this shift is not happening quickly enough or significantly enough and that you know i mean y- your predictions are that we might just make it globally by 2050, but we need to do something more 
radical now, don't we really? I mean, we need to put pressure on government and on policymakers to actually make it more profitable and also more attractive for people to use a renewable energy source, whether they're as a consumer or whether it's as a, as a major provider. Yes, I mean, I think there are many players and stakeholders within this whole space, and it's not um, just up to the energy suppliers, for example. It is about government to create the right policies to facilitate uh, the market, um, and that facilitation of the market is not just about uh, carbon targets, for example, although that's part of the story, so EUTS, you know, the uh, European Emissions Trading Scheme, as an example, which facilitates or requires industrial companies to... Uh, hit certain maximum carbon thresholds, and if they go beyond that, they have to buy some of those credits. So that's been a very successful scheme, which has been rolled out in other markets. So industrial is that an offsetting scheme, though, the buying of the credits? It's an offsetting scheme in a way. So where they go over, yes, they have to go to others who have gone under and buy credits for them. The challenge has been that the market price for carbon has not been high enough. Um, and historically, it's set around $6. But when that goes up above you know, $15, $20, $30 uh, per, 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 per tonne of carbon, then you start to see much more impact on the industrial companies. And, of course, then cost becomes an issue for them so that they're more incentivized to then do more about their energy. And as Joe says, uh, let's take industrials as an example. Okay, They represent something like 30%, 25 to 30% of global um, energy demand. And when you say industrials, you mean large manufacturing organisations? Large manufacturing organisations, ex- okay. exactly. So there are many things they can do. So energy efficiency is, is critical in that. Right? So they can actually reduce the amount of energy they use to produce a single widget, let's say. So that's part of the story. They can source energy from different sources, right? from renewable sources instead of from, from gas, which is typically what they use for heating, or from oil or from, from coal. So they can do a number of things, but Government can support that by either stick and carrot, so they can provide incentives for them to do so, or sticks if they don't achieve certain things, as they've done with, with, with the UTS, for example. So industry has a role to play, government has a role to play, um, and the market has a role to play, of course, and end consumers has, have a role to play. Um, because at the end of the day, remember, every single thing we produce at the end of the day is consumed by a consumer, whether it's a piece of fruit, uh, whether it's a, a, it's a TV, it's a widget, <laughs> mm. it's something that goes into ha- a house, for example, or a building. Um, uh, so I think it's important that tastes from a consumer perspective also need to adapt and change in order to facilitate and prompt, shall we say, uh, the, 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 the providers of some of these products and services to change as well. That's quite a tall order, though, isn't it, Joe? Because, I mean, you've been talking about... I mean, a lot of your customers will be domestic customers, won't they? Yeah. And, and, you know, for most people, it comes down to lifestyle and cost. So lots of people can't be bothered. We know the statistics about switching your energy supplier are, are painfully low. People get into a habit, they don't bother. So there's, they, they're, they're not motivated to do that. People are, you know... We're all very busy, we live busy lives, but people tend to be lazy about their own, you know, their own energy consuming habits, don't they? Not turning things off. So so that's quite a big education programme and transition programme from consumers' point of view, isn't it? Uh, it's, do you know what? It's, it's the biggest challenge we have right now is helping people understand 
their energy more. We, you know, we know that the more people understand their energy, so the more they value it, the more they value it, the less they use. Now, that's your energy efficiency and energy consumption reduction piece, so for a domestic or small business uh, customer, and that uh, you know, plays into their carbon footprint as well. Let's not forget that for an average domestic or smallish business, 40% of their carbon footprint is locked up in their energy supply. So helping them understand really and truly where that energy is coming from. So this, as I was saying earlier, this direct sort of connection to the generator. It's really, really important whether that generator is themselves in their own home with uh, PV on the roof, uh, uh, solar panels on the roof, or with an air source heat pump or, or, or other sort of electrified heating device, or with their electric vehicle outside. You know, it's about bringing all of that together. You know, the electrons are desperately important still, but perhaps it's about the data and the analysis of the consumption that sits behind those. You know, we're seeing the rollout of uh, smart meters. We're seeing, you know, uh, tech-enabled companies, uh, you know, like Good Energy, helping to you know bring solutions to people, uh, you know, with respect to their energy-related emissions. But it is—it's about bringing all of that together in a holistic way to help people really engage it from. You know the, the consumers or, or businesses, and, and we think that will make the change. You know, we, we need to help people understand so they can vote with their feet. And do smart meters really make changes? Because I mean, I've been reading conflicting reports about how effective they are in actually, you know, encouraging people to behaviour change. Because what we're talking about here is significant behaviour change, isn't it? Yeah. It's having the heating on less and at a lower level. It's turning things off. It's consuming less energy as well as having your energy supplied in a more sustainable fashion. Mm. Uh, yes, uh, people's opinions on smart meters are varied, I think it's fair to say. Uh, people worry about security, people worry about Big Brother, you know, there's, there's various worries that uh, you know, some people have. You know, what I think is that anything you can do that allows you to really engage the process is going to be a good thing. Smart meters do do that. You know, it makes, you know, with the in-home displays or the apps or, you know, the sort of web-enabled stuff that comes with them nowadays, you can really, really get into the nuts and bolts about how your home or your small business is using its energy. Uh, and, and there then, isn't a data security issue because they do collect data, don't they? And there, you know, we hear a lot about you know data breaches and people's you know yeah, yeah. data being mined for for nefarious purposes. I mean, does smart meters present any kind of a risk? Uh, any kind of a risk. Uh, <laughs> I guess so. I think there's risk with everything nowadays, isn't there? You know, if you if you, you wander the streets with your credit card in your pocket, somebody can come up and put one of those things next to you and lift all your money there. You know, your children can open emails that perhaps they're not meant to and then push buttons. There is risk everywhere. I think it's a balance of risk. And I think that the bigger picture is about the... You, you know, this con continuation on the pathway to reducing your consumption and smart meters do play a big part of that, I think. Okay, so if I were to ask you to kind of weigh up how much is consumption and how much is um, production supply, how would you say that? I mean, are we going to meet our climate change target th solely through reducing our consumption? Or how much of our, I mean, how much, you know, what are the percentages like? If we have 50% wow. reduction in terms of our consumption, you know, and 50% increase in renewables coming into the grid, will that do it? I mean, because I think these things are, the problem is that the statistics around this are, are quite confusing. And even for people who are quite well informed, they think, well, 
you know, you've told me to turn my heating down, fine. But actually, if I still see, you know, the, 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 the fossil fuels being pumped out, and I still see industry getting away with polluting behaviour around energy because they can buy a carbon credit somewhere else. Mm. What's the point? So what, what does that look like in terms of an equation? I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult, well, <laughs> it's difficult <laughs> to How give a specific <laughs> um, uh, percentage in, in, in that way. But what, what I would say is, you know, again, back to the, the stakeholders, that both the producers and the end consumers have a role to play in this, this space. The producers themselves of energy, whether they're utilities, so, so you know, power producers, right, but, you know, power plants and things, whether they are um, oil and gas companies providing oil, uh, whether they're mining companies providing coal, um, they're being faced with significant challenges uh, in terms of trying to decarbonize. Um, so they have a set of challenges which is forcing them to go down a certain path and to, 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 to become more um, environmentally friendly. Let's, let's take an example of, of a company, Shell. Right? Shell has, has agreed, and we'll you know, talk maybe more about the oil and gas sector, but Shell has agreed to uh, divest $30 billion of assets uh, globally of, of its oil generating assets and then an additional five billion per year so they're transitioning away from their traditional uh, fossil fuels into uh, renewables and investing one to two billion dollars in renewable assets so they have a role to play and they're taking some action they have to take more action in terms of users you know in terms of transport for example right um, consumers have a role to play they can choose to buy electric vehicles okay and they are doing so as the cost of some of those vehicles is coming down. So the producers of those electric vehicles, you know, as they become more efficient, uh, as the battery costs become lower, uh, as the cost of producing that electric vehicle car becomes better, in addition to cities imposing, you know, for example, London is on the ultra emissions uh, zones, um, that is facilitating people to think about their choices. Okay, so I think there are there are things in terms of the producers, in terms of the intermediaries like governments who produce or setting up some of these standards and requirements, and end users then making a change. That I think, as a mix, we need to see change in all of those areas, not in just just one. Yeah, but just to push you on my point, would you say that that you know it's fifty fifty, or is it more? You know, if the consumers change their behaviours by seventy percent, you know we're letting some of the producers off or should it be the other way around? I mean, where does the real burden of responsibility lie? Because at the moment, a lot of the alternatives are more expensive, aren't they? I mean, electric cars are more expensive than than, than petrol and diesel. Um, it's more expensive to source your energy from a green supplier than from a, from perhaps from a non-green supplier. If you, you know, yeah. I mean, maybe you would argue with that. Joe, please do if that's the case. And, you know, and a lot of that is pushing responsibility on to me as a consumer, yeah. um, you know, possibly with limited budget and limited time. And, you know, the billions you're talking about at Shell, well, that naturally they're going to do that because they're going to be forced to do that. But the cynic in me says, well, you know, yet again, the individual consumer is having to take a lot of responsibility for this. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have responsibility as citizens of the planet. Of course we do. But, but I'd, 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 know, I'd, I'd, I'd massively... I think we need to push back a bit on some of these big companies. Yeah, I, I'd agree. I, I think, though, that sometimes we just have to pause, reflect and look out the window. You know, what we're seeing is, you know, climate change evidenced. What we're seeing is weather patterns massively, massively changing. Uh, you know, the, the, there's huge amount of cost there. You know, if, if, if without being too morbid about it, you, you know, I really do worry. And I worry that people 
and I understand that uh, expense is certainly an issue around some of these things, whether it's uh, for, a, for a government or for a house. But, we, you know, we, we just have to realise that we've got to do something about this pretty quickly. Uh, so from, you know, a government perspective, it means bringing in policy that is sensible, that allows, uh, you know, people and businesses to invest in technologies or, you know, all the other stuff they can to make their energy situation better. Uh, I think, uh, yeah, you know, the it's, it really is, it's a scary time to be around. I've got two young children who are asking me about what they can do. You know, we see what uh, Greta Thunberg is doing uh, and, you know, that massive sort of, you know, rise in, in awareness. Uh, I do think that people need to perhaps get their priorities right with some things. You know, to specifically answer your question on uh, the cost of uh, renewables, you know, you can buy really good renewables and yes it is a bit more expensive than the very cheapest you can buy but you can also buy some fairly greenwashed renewables as well and you know that's another wider conversation but until people actually engage with their energy and understand the difference that particularly their energy can make as i said 40 percent of the average house's carbon footprint locked up in their energy you know and make some sort of choice and actually perhaps budget for that choice you know i think we've got a bit of a problem you know quacky we transport food single-use plastics all these other things that are making a massive difference to our planet we've got to address those as well you know we're here today just to talk about energy uh, but i you know i would just encourage everybody to become a bit more engaged with all mm. of it what do you mean by greenwashed renewables uh, so what i mean is and, and again this is a longer topic but uh, in a sort of uh, nutshell uh, it's quite easy now to just go to market and buy a certificate that says a unit of power is green and put that certificate that says a unit of power is green onto one you already have that is brown. Is that a fair summary? So people cheat, is what you're saying? Uh, yes. I mean, again, from a legislative and regulatory position, it's OK. From a common sense, let's look under the bonnet of this thing and see how it works. I think it's bonkers. How can that be OK from a regulatory position? Because if we have a government that signed up to, 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 to the Paris Agreement and says that we're committed to reducing our climate impact and keeping it at 1.5 degrees by 2050, how can it be okay to say we'll allow you to badge something that's that's dirty as something that's clean? Uh, I don't think it is, is the summary answer. Uh, I don't know if Alcorn got something to say on that. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we, 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 we want legislation that has an impact. Right? We don't want it legislation for the sake of legislation. If people are bypassing uh, these things, then, you know, just today I was listening to something which is a totally different sector uh, on the radio where they were talking about schools that can get grant funding uh, to run these schools but actually when you go to them they actually don't comply to any of the regulations and they continue to be run. So we have these examples where people will badge something as a school in that case but actually not really be fit for purpose uh, and would uh, fail any offset inspection. So I think in the same case you know, this is not immune from those sorts of conditions. Mm. Yeah, so, another example would be Shell, you mentioned earlier. You know, look, it's excellent some of the news that they've uh, announced about, uh, you, you know, their move you know, more towards renewables. But they bought a UK energy supplier the other day whose fuel mix. So, you know, 3.7 out of every 100 electrons coming down the pipe came from renewable sources. Uh, Shell bought them and uh, overnight 
without, as I can see it, any evidence of increased contracts with any other generators and stuff, you know, that electricity is now branded 100% renewable because it has the certificates to match, and yet nothing has changed about the way First Utility uh, are getting their uh, energy. Joe, that's shocking. I think so. I think so. Well, this comes back to my wider point, doesn't it? I mean, as consumers, it's so difficult for us. You know, how do we call these people out? I mean, how do we ensure that the... That the, the you know the energy mix that that's been you know put forward in the future is truly green, and how do we put pressure on on both providers and government to mm. to make those changes happen? I mean, and I think that you know your own um, predictions at DNV. I mean, it it isn't going to be enough in, until there's a real step change in in the into the wider use of renewables, is it? I mean, yeah. you're calling for that, but 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 we need to move much more quickly, presumably. So let, let, let's maybe just 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 touch upon how much investment is required to make this change happen, and uh, I think one stat from the climate group indicated you need 16, uh, sorry, 12 trillion dollars. 12 trillion dollars. 12 trillion dollars over the next 25 years to try and achieve what we need to achieve, and what that translates to about 480 billion dollars a year. Okay. Okay, which sounds like an enormous, but this is we're talking about globally, yeah? which sounds like an enormous number. Now, some of that will come from, from governments. Was that a global figure? That's a global figure. Um, some of that will come from governments, right, providing sort of funding, grants, etc., to SMEs or to consumers to try and uh, install and, 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 and facilitate movement towards a clean environment, which is both on energy efficiency, remember, not just renewables. And I think it's important to think about, and, and, and Joe, you mentioned the point, energy efficiency is a big part of, 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 of this particular transition. Um, then you've got a lot of the um, development banks, you know, the World Banks, mm. uh, the Green Climate Fund, mm. uh, the IFC, all of these sorts of institutions provide and fund large chunks of money, largely to emerging markets, albeit, uh, to try and help this transition. So the World Bank, for example, has committed to to investing 20 billion a year from 2021 to 2023 uh, in these sorts of things. So that goes a, a little bit of the way, and then the rest, which is the large chunk, of course, has to come from the market. Um, and there you've got you know investors who want to make a return out of some of these renewables projects who are doing so and getting good returns. And we're seeing much more activity and no shortage of money actually. Uh, in fact, we have we have issues perhaps finding the right yeah. projects, yeah, renewable projects, case, yeah. um, and lots of money chasing those projects. You've got developers who want to operate some of these farms, wind farms or solar farms, etc., who are also looking for uh, running a business that's profitable. Uh, and you've got supply chains. You've got a lot of uh, companies who will provide kit to then enable these sorts of farms to to, to operate, whether that's you know solar panels, whether that's you know grid infrastructure, whether that's cables, all of these things that are required that will actually generate economic value, create jobs. So uh, what I'm but saying they, is there is a market for this stuff. It's an opportunity. It's not just a risk. Yeah, well, no, absolutely, I'd agree with you. But there is a real resistance, isn't there? Because, you know, our own kind of energy minister, you know, is on record as saying that she's not going to undertake any of the Committee on Climate Change's recommendations on creating a net zero policy framework if her department feels that doing so would exclude particular regions or social classes. So if she thinks that the the parts of the country is going to be, you know, um, negatively impacted in the short term, she's not prepared to do anything for thinking in the long term. You know, she's saying it creates social unrest and the yellow jacket protests, her words, not mine. But we know the stats and the figures show that for, you know, the rise of green jobs, 
in the potential mm. rise of mm. green jobs is enormous. So there's got to be a short-term loss for a medium to long-term gain. But that requires really brave political thinking, it doesn't does. it? And that's not what we're getting. We're not getting brave political thinking, well, are when, we? When you get the sorts of things you saw in France... Uh, of course, uh, as you mentioned the other Yeah, and ironically, they were all about you know increasing the tax on diesel, weren't right. they? <laughs> Let's so, face it, we don't we don't want that in the UK. We don't, and and, and so you've got a, a political problem now. Politicians, of course, you know, operate in in four or five year cycles, right? Uh, yeah. So they operate in fairly short term uh, pieces. This is the problem for anyone, whether you're a CEO, uh, you're a politician, uh, you operate in short um, post term posts, and so you're incentivized to make the best of whatever it is to either get the vote, to make maximise your profits as a company. And so that doesn't facilitate long-term thinking uh, and doesn't prompt long-term thinking. Um, but you need policies as well that do look to the long-term. So I think people like Claire Perry or others um, are in this difficult position of trying to, to, to manoeuvre. And so I think what they try and do is to ensure whatever long-term plan they put in place doesn't jeopardise their long-term, uh, the short-term need to, to, to be re-elected. And I think it's a very difficult balance for them to, to, to hit, unfortunately. Yeah, yes, but I would say that, you know, we have all admitted that the most pressing issue we face is climate change. Um, you know, we, we have young people on the streets in their millions. Um, you know, we have people from all ages and backgrounds taking to the streets for various protests through things like Extinction Rebellion. So, mm. so this matters to the electorate. It matters to people. So, I mean, I would say that I think possibly the role of, of, of organisations like yours is to push back on government and insist, actually, that they take action on this. And it's not good enough to just say, oh, I can't, because it might upset some people. Um, I mean, it, it's going to upset some people, but we're far more upset when the planet's underwater. We, we try. Uh, I think I think we both try. You, you know, policy is really, really important. You want one that, uh, you know, is supportive and allows renewable technologies to flourish rather than one that uh, perhaps uh, punishes people. Uh, again, you know, one thing we haven't spoken about, but you know, the the, the require the, the jobs aspect and uh, the growth in flexibility. So there, we're talking about uh, you know the battery consumption, the EVs, the building more stuff, the falling cost of batteries, the falling cost of solar, is providing more jobs. But do you know what? I'd just come back to my original point about engaging more at whatever level you are, whether you are a CEO, you know, and making choices about the uh, you know top line board level choices about the procurement of energy and efficiency solutions for your business, right the way down sort of through the scale to consumers at home to just understand a bit more about you know spend some time, invest some time in understanding the bigger picture and then take action. Vote with your feet, vote with your your vote. <laughs> you, you know, there's lots yeah. you can do. Difficult, though, if we, if we are subject to, to greenwashing, isn't it? Because you might think you're doing the right thing and, you know, you look at your energy bill and it says how much of it's come from renewables. And as you say, we, we're not always informed enough to be able to call some of those, those statements out. Again, I agree. It's, you, you know, energy is complex. The choices around energy are complex. Uh, and especially as we move to a decentralised uh, model where, you, you know, in the future we see, you, you know, you using power from your neighbour's roof or storing it in a battery that's at a street level or having communal electric vehicles and, and, and things like that. It is really, really difficult. But in the same way, I guess, that, uh, you know, people now do cycle to work. People now do recycle. People do care about single-use plastics. You know, the next thing we need people to do is really get engaged 
engaged with their energy. It starts in the home. Take it into your business. You know, try and influence your your street, your village, your town. You know, talk to your MP. Apply pressure. Just more people talking about it is a good thing. More people taking action on it is a good thing. Uh, and yeah, you, you, you know, it's it's a real challenge because, as, as I say, you know, the 1.5 degrees that the IPCC talk about, uh, or, or any of these other metrics that uh, govern the doom and gloom around climate change, uh, we're, we're coasting towards that and we really need to put our foot on the brakes and do something about it. Mm. The, the other kind of maybe more um, optimistic picture I might paint is... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to have a balance. We love a balance on the pod. Is, uh, remember, we're not talking about being a million miles off where we expect to be by 2050. We are going to be off uh, at current transition uh, rates. So, you know, electricity is going to be as 19% today of the mix uh, of energy supply moving to 45% is what we expect by 2050. And something like 70% of that 45% comes from solar and wind. So there is a transition expected, right? We are moving in that direction. The uh, whilst population is going to grow, we believe efficiency uh, will mean that, again, every product uh, of of, of uh, every product produced will require less energy. The amount of consumption of an individual is going to decline. Well, probably um, only in, in, in developed parts of the world, though, where we, uh, we've got access to... But this is, I'm painting a global picture here. Yeah. So, yes, there are going to be imbalances, and China and India, for example, are going to continue to use coal for a lot longer than, than we're going to see in, in, in the developed markets. Mm. So there are going to be imbalances, but I guess given that we're talking about two degrees globally, we have to look at it in some ways as a global picture, whilst we have to understand the national and then the consumer implications of that for ourselves, of course. But I guess what I'm saying is that I think a transition is expected. We are moving in that direction. We are seeing more activity. We're seeing consumer habits change. We're seeing more vegetarians. We're seeing cycling. We're seeing some of these things. But you would accept, Agreen, that we do need to do more, and that transition could happen more quickly if there was more commitment to renewables. I mean, the you know the International Renewable Energy Agency has stated that that you know their remap case, as they call it, could allow us to have eighty six percent of renewables providing energy and electricity energy generally by between twenty twenty and twenty fifty. So that's obviously a massive step change, which obviously. involves you not just policy but significant investment so it is possible so maybe we do we need to make the models more ambitious and say actually you know we don't need 40 percent we need 80 percent i mean you know is that what we should be calling for well you know countries for example commit to certain targets not all of them some have right Mm -hmm. um and i i think there, there's since Paris, obviously, you have a, a global commitment of whatever 180 plus countries to do certain things to try and achieve that two degree. Um, and we need to do more, and we need more commitment. And, and of course, current regimes in certain parts of the world, particularly North America, don't help that situation where they are. That stymies some of this development. Mm. But I think what's happened in, in, just to take you as an example, is that whilst at a federal level, for example, there's been a resistance to climate change, uh, increasing subsidies to coal, trade barriers, all these sorts of mm, things that mm. prevent perhaps climate change at a, at a kind of city's level, yeah, where it actually matters, yeah. they're still doing and, and actually not, not worrying about what's happening at the federal level. So I see in some cases there, for example, a backlash to whatever yeah. the, the federal level uh, is stating and what they're doing on the ground. 
So yes, more activity is needed, and I see some action in some places, um, but we need to do more for sure, and more investment is needed. More government facilitation of some of these things uh, is required. Right now in the UK, the government is looking at, for example, you talked about SMEs earlier, Joe. Right? What are the different business models that we can put in place to facilitate greater levels of energy efficiency within the SME market? Okay, so they are looking at different business models. Can we introduce ESCOs, for example, who provide guaranteed savings for SMEs? Uh, or What's an ESCO? ESCO, the energy savings okay. uh, companies, who effectively take over the, the, mm. the energy supply for, for a company mm. and commit and guarantee to that company that your energy savings today will be reduced and will take over that, that commitment uh, and guarantee that. And because they've got expertise, they can deploy certain energy efficiency measures, which will pay back quickly. Yeah. Uh, so there are those sorts of things which governments could do more of, you know, they could facilitate and get more ESCOs in the market. Uh, but government is putting some of these projects in place to try and find new ways and new business models to facilitate action. Yeah. Possibly not fast enough, but they are doing something. So thank you. That, that's been a fascinating discussion. And, you know, the message I'm taking away is that we need to act both as individuals and as consumers and be more aware but perhaps also in terms of our advocacy role, you know, as voters and as, as buyers of, 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 of energy. So it's really a question of saying we need to take action individually. I mean, I don't know. Have you got any particular calls to action that you would add to that? Uh, be involved, be engaged, understand where your energies come from and uh, understand the choices that you can make and then do your very best to use as little as possible. Yeah, I mean, my, mine would be, uh, you know, everyone has to take responsibility and it's shared responsibility. And you, know, you touched upon this earlier, you know, is it the consumer, is it the, the supplier of, of energy? And I'd say, or is it government uh, and other sort of stakeholders in the middle who, who, who facilitate oil, the machine towards uh, a transition? Um, and I think it's about everyone seeing what is ultimately happening and realising for themselves that they need to take action irrespective of what governments do, irrespective of what the market's doing. Suppliers need to take action. Individuals need to take action. And, and hopefully people will see where we're heading and then accelerate that process. Thank you. Fascinating discussion. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you to my guests and thank you for listening. We would love to hear from you about what you think about Planet Pod. You can tweet at planet underscore pod or get in touch via the website theplanetpod.com where you can subscribe and download previous episodes. If you've enjoyed today's show, please give us a five-star review. It helps us make better programmes. Be sustainable and stay green. Planet Pod is an Akil Sounds production hosted by me, Amanda Carpenter, Edited and produced by Jim Haywood, with additional research by Beth Palmer.